This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. So I'm really excited to have a panel of three uh, tremendous revolutionaries. Um, Rabab is here with us, and then Sarah and Mazan are are joining us virtually. Um, Rabab Al-Naim is the former spokesperson of the Sudanese Workers' Alliance for the Restoration of Trade Unions and the co-founder of the Tamabarotu podcast, a feminist podcast that discusses topics from our daily lives and their intersections with capitalism, colonialism, and other systems of oppression, an attempt to dismantle, question, and rethink the social structures and institutions that surround our struggle towards liberation. Muzan Al-Neil is joining us from Sudan, and she's an engineer and Sudanese activist who has written widely about the Sudanese revolution. She's the co-founder of the Innovation, Science, and Technology Think Tank for People-Centered Development and a non-resident fellow at the Tahrir Institute for Middle East Policy. And Sarah Abbas, also joining us virtually from Germany, I believe. Um, is a researcher and scholar who is active in Sudan's solidarity work. She's currently researching the practices and imaginations that emerged in the occupied spaces, the sit-ins, during Sudan's December Revolution, and how those spaces are contested also from within. So we'll start with uh, the three speakers, about 10 minutes each, so about 30, 40 minutes of uh, the initial presentation, and then we'll have a good period of time for y'all to ask questions, have a discussion, and leave some time for Rabab, Sarah, and Ruzan to wrap up. So without further ado, I'll turn it over to you, Rabab. Thank you, Brian. Um, Thank you, everyone. I have to start by giving glory to the martyrs of Sudan and long live the struggle for the people of Sudan. Um, so it's, it's a little bit challenging to start talking about the revolution in Sudan, given that it's going to its um, end of the third year. Uh, but let's start uh, with the event that started in December 2018. Um, so in December 2018, um, the way I say it, it there is a major event that started with high schoolers taking to the street demanding um, better prices for bread, demanding availability of bread. So they were actually trying to get food, high schoolers. Um, with that, within like, um, and this was not in the capital. This was um, in a state called Sinar, um, province of Sudan, to the south of Sudan. Um, with that followed um, a series of protests. And at the same time, there was a series of strikes um, for school teachers, basically requiring a better minimum wage and asking for whatever minimum wage that was existing at the time to actually be paid in time for high schoolers, um, sorry, for school teachers. Um, so we, the first part of December 2018, we were basically, Sudanese people were demanding um, food and demanding a better minimum wage. Um, within that, there was this institution called the Sudanese Professional Association, SPA, um, and they started giving studies and talks about minimum wage in Sudan, comparing the minimum wage in Sudan with minimum wage in countries surrounding Sudan, 
and they were calling for a protest toward the end of December for the sole purpose of improving the minimum wage. Uh, but the event that preceded that protest actually led to the protest being changed from just increasing the minimum wage to demanding the fall of the government. And in that transition, we see the SPA started taking a different role than the role that started. The SPA is basically an alliance of different professionals, um, teachers, lawyers, doctors, and other professionals who basically created um, a parallel existence to unions before December 2018, because unions before December 2018 were basically a state union. They were not union for the workers. They were not representing the workers. Um, so moving forward, um, we see that there is another group, another player, um, which is the Force for Change and Freedom and Change, FFC. Um, they were actually in December 2018 um, mid negotiation with the Bashir government and maybe preparing for election in 2020. But somehow the event on the street, um, the revolutionary event on the street, kind of forced them to join <laughs> without actually talking about their interest, without the event being to their interest. And we see the start of um, the FFC, which is a political, an elitist political um, alliance of the same player they have been there since post-colonial Sudan, um, since um, 1956. Um, so within January, February, all the way leading to April, 2019, which is another mark in the Sudanese revolution, um, we've seen a lot of decentralized movement for protest, protests who were not centralized in the capital um, state, and they were also not according to whatever someone wishes. It was actually, we've seen a lot of neighborhood um, or resistance committee organized based on neighborhoods, um, and this is not a new idea in Sudan, this has been going on maybe since 2011, 2013, but it got very popular and it's, it seems like every other day we have a new um, neighborhood resistance committee in Sudan. Um, there were um, weekly protests and a lot of activities within the week uh, based on neighborhoods. Um, People got very creative. They involved everyone from the youngest to the oldest in the neighborhood with their different interests, with their different ways of protesting. Um, so the protest, um, the, the Thursday protest became the center of the week. Um, the entire week, everyone in Sudan is anticipating and preparing for their participation in the Thursday um, protest. And this went on for the entire um, January, February, March. Um, leading towards April 6, where we started the Seren in Khartoum, in front of the headquarters of the military. And it was not just only in Khartoum, it actually happened across Sudan and different states in major cities in Sudan. Um, and the Seren is also a new uh, period, but you have to remember that there is two players here. There are the revolutionaries who actually take to the street, who actually demand and protest on a weekly basis, and there is the political, the same ruling class, the elite, that see this as an opportunity to seize power. So they, um, even the political charter that, uh, um, uh, that the FFC was based on was actually, um, and Muzan can maybe elaborate on this, was actually a political charter that maintained the same power structure, only changed the people on top, but maintained the same power structure. And hence, it was only normal for those players to actually, um, instead of demanding um, the surrender of power to the people, they started negotiating 
with the military council, right? They gave them legitimacy that they did not have before, right? Um, so we see that change also happened in the first period of April. But at the same time, the Sirim um, presented a point of pressure um, every time the political elite tried to get in too much into their negotiation, too much into their comfort zone, um, the Syrian actually put pressure, and not only in Khartoum, like I said, in different states. And a couple of points that I would like to mention about the Syrian. Um, so the, the first, the start of the protest was demand for bread, and again, it's the rise in bread prices. And then the slogan developed into freedom, peace, and justice. And then we had this brilliant, <laughs> but also lacking slogan of just fall. So we wanted the government to fall, but we were actually talking about the power structure to fall. Um, the point here is we maybe did not really do the work of translating how bread prices and minimum wage fall into freedom, peace, and justice. Uh, but within that, there was a lot of um, organized labor involved in the sit-in. Um, there was a lot of call for strikes, and all those call of strikes were actually met with violence, um, with arrest, with um, gun violence. Um, there's multiple cases of uh, bus drivers, of um, workers in the electricity sector um, calling for a strike and actually accomplishing a strike, for example, end of May. Um, and at the same time, the political elite were still doing negotiation where people are striking and, meeting and being met with violence. Um, all of this actually led to the massacre of June 3rd. Um, and the massacre was in the capital Khartoum and also it was um, in all Syrian across Sudan. Um, we lost a lot of people. Um, a lot of people are still missing. Um, and the month of June 2019 was the month where we had no internet connection. Um, even cellular services within Sudan were difficult to reach. Um, different cities were locked down. For example, in the capital Khartoum, um, there are three major cities. Um, you cannot trans. It's not easy to go from one city to the other during June. Um, with those extreme circumstances, with all that violence, we were still able to organize the biggest march, which was June 30th. Um, so while um, the revolutionaries were working under um, extreme violent situation to organize June 30th and still sticking to our demand of freedom, peace, and justice, um, there were a deal that being cooked between the FFC and the military. And that deal actually led to the transitional government, which I guess ran the Sudan from sometime in April until um, October 2021. Um, so Within, so June 30th was also a big day in Sudan in 2019. Uh, we lost people on that day. And then after that day, within like a week or so, also we lost a lot of people um, in different cities across Sudan because people were still angry at the fact that negotiation is being um, held or continue to be held while we just um, came out of the massacre of June 3rd and also another massacre in June 30th and a massacre also I think was July 5th. Um, from that point of view, like from that point of time, um, there is the disconnect between the revolutionaries on the street and the political elite represented by FFC and the new partnership with the military. Again, we have to remember that um, the point at which 
the change from surrendering power to the people versus negotiating with the military, that point happened sometime in April, right? So there is really no change in the power structure within Sudan. Um, so the, the disconnect between the revolution on the street and the political elite started to grow farther and farther. And the entire transitional period was a period full of violence, um, full of death by the violence of the state, um, different form of violence. It doesn't just have to be arrest. Um, people got their head, their hair shaved, um, which is uh, a remembrance of the Islamic dictatorship al Bashir, which one was supposed to be have been overthrown, right? But it wasn't. <laughs> Only people changed, um, and there was a lot of like, different violence in terms of like um, economical violence. Um, the transitional government continued the same uh, economical uh, policies uh, that was actually encouraged and called by by the international community. Um, no progress has been made in bringing justice, whether it was that um, to the massacre of June 3rd or all the massacre that happened before that during the previous regime. Um, so all of this, I guess, led to the inevitable conclusion of another coup, uh, because to the begin with, the political elite did what they do best, which is negotiate to maintain the same power structure, but them at the head of that power structure, um, and they did try to bring, bring around a partnership with the military where the military doesn't have an existence and doesn't have a legitimacy. Um, I'll stop here and turn it over to Madan to talk about the second coup, and I'll continue. Thank you. Minister and the civilian cabinet have been arrested uh, by the head of the military. 
So basically, the military partners in the, the partnership that are about to explain to us how they came to place. And um, as we can see um, in the photos from the youth public parade on that day, the Sunnis people went out to the streets directly and immediately. And clearly declaring the rejection of the military rule to have to come back one more time. Um, they were chanting the same slogans that they chanted in 2018 and um, added to it um, you know, a, a, a new slogans that were created during the transitional period um, and slogans after that uh, on freedom, peace, and justice, along with you know the new slogans about the battles that uh, were delayed and will not be postponed one more time and about their full rejection of the military rule um, due to the actions that they took uh, over those three years. So, it was clear over here um, and, and the benefits of the continuation of the protest movement and the protest actions that took place during the three years of the of the transitional period of transitional government, and because that's what provided the public with the tools they needed on this day, even if there was no communication, with all the ones that they took how we to the streets and how we built their gates, their schools, and what to expect from the from the state forces. Now, most of the mainstream media platforms presented those protests um, in, the, in, in the first week as led by the forces of freedom and change. Those are the, the, the elite, the old and unusual uh, parties that Rabab um, uh, mentioned and explained. And um, it was always presented in this way. And, and, and this is basically that this is a, a frame that is easier for the simple narratives of the mainstream to present and the act to actually try to understand um, the new form of popular organization that actually took leadership, uh, which is the neighborhood resistance committees. Um, so the neighborhood resistance committees assumed the leadership of the protest and issued schedules for protest action uh, across the country. So what about all this, the SPA was doing, the Sunni Professional Association was doing in 2018, 2019. Now this new body that is called the Resistance Committee took over and now it is the, the one that is doing it. It's that target decided on um, process days and so on. What we see at, in the picture of the top, at the top is um, a crowd by the, um, next to the presidential palace. This is one of the many protest days um, that take place over there. And in the picture underneath there, we also see a snapshot from from the battles uh, that the protesters go through against the violence of the forces of the state um, as they try to reach the presidential palace and see the justice inside there of five to peaceful protest. And on the left, we see protesters with plastic barrels um, used as their shields, um, and, and those barrels covered with symbols of resistance and paintings of the faces of the martyrs killed by the state forces. Now, these protests that you might have a picture of now looking at those photos, uh, they did not stop until this very second. Um, more than 117 peaceful protesters were killed by the state forces since the coup in October, and some were shot with live bullets, others were uh, shot with tear gas canisters, shot directly with protesters' heads, um, and among many other weapons that um, the Sudanese state uses uh, against its people. Now, in addition to the army general, the Sudanese revolution is also facing a counter-revolutionary international community. Uh, several attempts were made by the national elite and the international community to restore uh, the partnership between the military and the civilians in the past few months, and it's of course understandable, um, given that their interests, both sides, national and international, um, they have an interest in enforcing stability inside in the public, in, 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 you know, uh, creating an environment that is accommodating to international investments, to capitalist profiting, and to economic liberalization, basically, in general, at the cost of the Sudanese people's welfare and decent living. 
These items include, uh, for example, a deal. This is the photo we see at the top. This was a deal uh, between the head of the military and the previously detained prime minister. So, yeah, took him out of home arrest and brought him and he signed the deal and the guy was very happy with it, both of them. And this thing was actually praised by the international community. And to the extent that the UN Secretary General asked these Sudanese people that we should just be rational, you know, and accept this deal. We are, we are irrational black people and we should just listen to them and they know what's best for us. And uh, the Sudanese people just did not. They did not accept. We chanted against the Prime Minister in a process that took place in the same day. Um, and the public gave him the name on, or the title, the Prime Minister of the Coup uh, on that day. The deal failed in one month. And the full prime minister failed to form a cabinet or end the protest, and he resigned and left the country. Another attempt at uh, restoring the partnership with the military is led by the UN mission in Sudan. And the mission is leading and advocating negotiations between the military generals and a number of Sudanese parties. Um, and, and this is not unusual for, for UN missions. This is not what they do. You know. But they advocate for uh, agreements between uh, elites, basically, that do not take the people in consideration. And the photo at the bottom here shows one of those meetings. And as you can see, I don't know if it's clear, but they are under the name consultations on public uh, on political process. And they're basically using the word consultations to avoid, say, negotiation or deliberation, because those two words are strongly rejected by the Sudanese public. So um, uh, instead of uh, rethinking their policy, they decided to rethink their messaging. Very basic. Uh, so, uh, it's also worth noting here that the UN mission invited the resistance committees to join these negotiations, but they rejected the one condition of the resistance committees, which is live streaming those meetings. They just wanted to turn on Facebook lives on their phones when they're in these meetings, which uh, we found out is a very effective deterrent for you know UN and diplomats. They just want to make to turn on that camera. So they, the UN thereby confirmed the lack of transparency and their questionable intentions. And uh, many. Uh, there are many others of those attempts, and they all failed at the face of the popular resistance three-node slogan, that is, no negotiation, no partnership, and no legitimacy for the military, um, a lesson learned from the past few years. And despite the extreme violence of the state and the number of people killed in peaceful protests, uh, the peaceful protests continue. And the people have also utilized a number of resistance tools, not limited to the protests, such as strikes uh, that took place among teachers, petroleum workers, and even the judiciary, we had a judiciary strike um, that were all for economic and political demands. Uh, there's also the closing of major roads. Uh, it's another important tool used by the Sudanese people. Um, farmers in the north, uh, for example, where this, the photo at, at the bottom is from, uh, they closed the main, the main road that links Sudan to Egypt, which most of Sudan's exports goes through, uh, through at least, you know, the ones that go through them. And um, they did that in rejection of a 500% increase of electricity tariff that was uh, um, uh, announced by the coup government. And uh, what you see in this picture below is one of those barricades in the north, formed by a small number of men from a nearby village. Um, you know, they, they've, um, they, they've put their barricades in a number of stones and so on. And this is stopping hundreds and hundreds of trucks that is taken exported goods. Um, outside Sudan, and it, it, it created some serious pressure and it was a very effective tool indeed. The demands of those farmers um, included the cancellation of the fee increase um, and the providing necessary services and so on. And uh, similar demands were done in areas where um, the, uh, most of the bulk mining areas were closed by similar uh, barricades. 
um, and so on. And um, it is it is worth mentioning over here that the electricity fee increase was part of the traditional government's plan prior to the coup. It was part of this uh, the plan of this great partnership that the UN praises. And it was specifically uh, actually praised, this increase was praised by the head of the World Bank when he visited Sudan in September 2022. So it is not very difficult to imagine that if it has been the traditional government that announced the fee, uh, announced the fee increase, then any protest against that would have been labeled you know, anti-development and against the so-called government of the revolution, because this has happened even to many of the strikes that Abbas told us about. Um, so um, the support that these protests, protests got from the public when, uh, when the propaganda of the traditional government was removed, it showed us that propaganda is seriously mightier than the gun and should be handled with due seriousness. And this was an important learning for us. Now, the, the main features of the current status of the Sudanese revolution are shaped by the Trino's slogan, as I said, previously uh, that is no negotiation or partnership and no legitimacy for the military. And uh, and it has a clear impact on our uh, our learning, uh, the lessons of the three years uh, of the traditional government. And uh, we can see that actually the increasement to transparency that is shown by the resistance committee in the example I gave regarding dealing with the UN mission. And we can see it in the public's reject to compromising, um, and which they learn by experience, basically. Now, on the other side, uh, the national elite and the international community continue to force a return to the military-civilian uh, partnership, despite the clear reject by the Sudanese public. And uh, the streets are not concerned mostly by these issues. Those are the things that you'll find on international news platforms if you Google Sudan. It'll be this maintain or this draft of a constitution created by this, I don't know what. No one in Sudan, let me just be honest, even cares about following these things. Uh, more people, those who are involved in, um, in the resistance and those and, and many who are not, but this is the major thing that we talk about, are more concerned with the political charters that are issued by the resistance committees. Uh, these charters define new roadmaps uh, for governing Sudan and for the development and redistribution of power and wealth in the country. And uh, what we see on the right here are two logos of two charters. At the top is the Revolutionary Charter of the People's Power. It's signed by the resistance committees in 15 out of Sudan's 18 states with a clear political economy analysis and um, an approach that analyzes the hardship that these people uh, are going through as a result of a regular capitalist economy trajectory shaped by the colonial powers and sustained by the local bourgeois. This charter also presents um, a, a new form of selecting uh, government starting from the local councils to a national legislative um, uh, and, 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 and guided by the demands of the revolution and prioritization of human life and uh, help basically accountable directly to the public. And uh, this is very different from the path that we are used to, which is governments that come from above. Now, the second charter was issued by the resistance committees in the capital. And despite that being only one state, um, the capital is uh, home of about a quarter of the population. And this is a population being closest to the to the federal uh, authorities, and thereby they have you know larger political weight uh, than other states. So what we see is the, uh, at the bottom is the charter of the capital called the charter for the establishment of the people power uh, issued by the resistance committees of the capital. And this charter it does include the same revolutionary values that can it can be spotted uh, in different parts of it. Uh, however, the charter is anchored around the idea and the concept of uniting you know the political actors of the revolution. So this is the primary objective, and not 
it's not a tool. So basically, it envisions the path shaped by building consensus and finding compromises. And, and that is very clear um, in, 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 in many parts of it. So for example, in the issue of political economy itself, it has a very different stance from the first structure we talked about. As despite it, uh, it says it prioritizes people's rights to life, this structure still calls for what they call that balancing demand of public debt and development mm -hmm. requirement. And, and this is basically saying that we're going to think about paying um, loans to the IMF or the World Bank or all the, all the small shark countries and institutions uh, before we think about people's lives. The, the, so the two charters, despite having the revolutionary, same revolutionary values, different stances uh, dependent on the interest of the groups that form, formed and created or created these charters. And uh, they are currently undergoing a process of uh, merging, as announced by their discourse committees. Um, um, a lot can be said about whether that is the, the right direction or not, but this is the main thing that uh, 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 more Sudanese people are interested in than the meetings of the UN and, and so on. Now, um, let's keep that in mind and go back to the, you know, the, the first photo, this photo that and we saw from and um, let's look at it um, from what we know now uh, or what was presented in my presentation on the boss and see why so much is wrong with it. First of all, um, um, although it's very clear to anyone who's following what's happening in Sudan or anyone who just like think about things rationally that the struggle of the Sudanese people has its roots um, and its uh, in their socioeconomic um, interest and the injustice that they've been subjected to, CNN here conveniently phrases it as if we went out to the streets against the Russians. All of a sudden, I don't know why. And this convenient misrepresentation of the struggle of the Sudanese people, it was not started by CNN. Actually, we saw that um, in the narrative of the revolution of consciousness. This was pushed by the national elite, as Rabat explained, um, against uh, the title of it being a revolution of hunger. Um, and those are, let me stop here and mention something that uh, Rabat mentioned, which is the charter that was put out by the National Elite. And this charter, there are some points in it that are very clear, uh, it shows the clear economic interest of, of, the, of, uh, of who, who wrote it, where it talks about ending the war in Sudan while preserving the historical land tenure system, so the land ownership. And this clearly says we want, it, we want to stop wars without thinking about redistribution of wealth. Because this is what the main issue is, who owns the land, basically. And this is something we should have saw from the beginning, yet we didn't, and we didn't see, do honestly to, to the lack of uh, knowledge of a proper revolutionary theory where we can use to analyze the interests of those different actors, and, and the lack of the revolutionary party that is supposed to take into this action of providing the revolutionary uh, theory and analysis uh, to the people. But, uh, 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 these are all misrepresentations that we saw coming uh, from, 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 from the national elite, as I said, uh, when they, just similar to the issue of land, they decided that this is a revolution of consciousness, most of, of hunger, it's very convenient to them to keep uh, things more abstract and away from the issue of hungry people, which threatens basically their control over the wealth and power, just like land redistribution. We also saw that among Western think tanks uh, that kept calling the revolution. You have 15 was on to see now. Sorry? You're at 15, just so you know. Okay, continue. Give me a minute, I'll try <laughs> So, um, yeah, about the Western think tanks. We also saw from the Western think tanks this misrepresentation when they were calling 
this day's revolution and revolution of the youth. And, and this is something they did before as well in the uprisings, um, the Arab Springs uprisings uh, revolution. Again, for the same reason, taking the discussion away from the economic bias and making it an issue of generational differences uh, and somehow never beneficial to the revolution. Another important point in CNN's coverage is how they also conveniently decide to exclude from the story um, and their phrasing of it, make it seem um, that the gold smuggling in Sudan just started now after the coup and just started with the Russians. Both is not true. Many com uh, companies are involved in this. Uh, at the top of them is the United Arab Emirates, a very close ally of the American government and uh, administrations. So of course they will decide not to mention that. And also these companies were working during the time of the transitional government, but they've been in the in the business of uh, you know promoting uh, this failed model of a partnership between the national elite and the military. Uh, so they will never mention that anything went wrong. Um, during this time. And um, um, there are many of these examples of misrepresentation. We saw it done by the UN, we saw it done by King and, and and so on. And these misrepresentations can be confusing um, because they are designed to confuse. The reality is simple, as I laid down at the end of the slide, that this is a revolution of the impoverished majority against all who benefit from their impoverishment. Very simple, yet it seems never mentioned. And while the Sudanese resistance have evolved in the in form of ter uh, in terms of organizing and creating new organizing models such as resistance committees and so on, the reality is that we actually we actually still lack in terms of revolutionary theory and revolutionary party, as I mentioned. And according to such misrepresentations can can sometimes impact even our stances. Um, um, uh, and the sense of the resistance front uh, itself, and that's why I said that the propaganda was, is mightier than the gun and should be dealt with uh, with, with due seriousness. Uh, I'm sorry for taking so long, but I hope the presentation managed to add some clarity. And yeah, thank you again. Go ahead, Sarah. Thank you, Mizan. Thank you. Hello. Yeah. Um, I hope you can hear me well. Um, thank you very much to Ryan, to Shadid, to everyone, also behind the scenes who helped organize it. I was hoping to be there with you in person, but um, because of COVID, I couldn't join. Um, I, I'm actually a respondent, so I don't have any pre-prepared remarks, but I just wanted to pick up on a few of the things that were mentioned by um, Muslim and Rabab were, you know, I, I don't know, isn't their bias is funny because um, they, they don't tell you a lot about um, the kind of incredible uh, activists that they are, the kind of work that they do. Um, I, uh, I've been thinking a lot about, it's very interesting that both Rabab and Muslim focused on the question of bread as a trigger for the revolution. Because I remember that one of the very early, um, one of the very early things that was in mainstream media about the revolution, and I think it was very early, maybe January 2019, uh, in the early days, was an op-ed in the Washington Post by um, Zachariah and Pili um, and Hussein Omar, um, both of whom are um, uh, professors um, in the U.S. and Hussein is Sudanese and an activist as well, someone I respect very much. And actually, uh, if I remember the title correctly, it was something like, these are not bread riots. Mm. Um, and it's, it's very interesting because I think at the time, um, they felt that 
the, the, the reporting, uh, the little reporting that happened in Reuters and in other media outlets about the, the protests in Sudan was dismissing them as, you know, hungry Africans who are, you know, going out because they don't have food again, like same old story. And so Nisreen and Zakaria were trying to actually say this is a very complex struggle. I'm sure they didn't pick the title, you know, but it was, um, they, they weren't really saying that bread is not involved, that they were saying that these are extremely complex, this is extremely complex social movement mm-hmm. that should be taken very seriously, that has many different facets to it. But of course, the way that I analyze it is also how interesting it is, at least in the context of the liberal media, that for you to be taken seriously, there are certain buzzwords that you have to hit. And definitely economics is not one of them. Uh, usually it's people are fighting for democracy. Some of the language that we also saw coming up a lot in the, the Arab Spring, you know, I'm putting it between quotes because I know that, that even that naming is, is um, problematic in many ways. But it's actually this idea that no, these people are more sophisticated, they're asking for elections, they're asking for constitutions, and of course people are asking for these things. But as Muslim and Rabab have made clear, at the heart of this is the issue of the distribution of wealth, right? And in that Sudanese household, one way in which you know very clearly where you are is your ability to afford bread. Um, so this is, you see historically in Sudan, since independence, that there is constantly um, there are moments when bread prices go up when people go out on the street because it's kind of a trigger to show you that you know you are struggling to survive and who is not struggling to access bread and so forth so I, I just wanted to mention that at the beginning um, and and just to, to, to think about these kinds of framings and what it does what it what is important for also um, in the way that the story is reported to obscure the role of the economic uh, economic factors, right? Um, I want to say that I'm a little bit older than Muslim and Rabab, and I lived through, you know, and in a way I've been thinking a lot over the last year as to essentially why solidarity with the Sudanese revolution, because my personal political formation as a child was in Sudan, but then as a migrant um, was in the diverse communities and in different struggles. And I was trying to think, what is it that makes it difficult? And of course, one of there's many different reasons. Um, when the revolution happened in Egypt, um, at least with Tahrir Square, um, that was the heart of where also the regional media was, the international media. A lot of these newspapers had their bureaus, you know, close to Tahrir in Cairo and so forth. And that, of course, helped. Um, but I think it was also the, 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 you know, Khartoum, you don't have that. I mean, 30 years of being isolated between U.S. sanctions and between the actions of the regime itself to isolate um, the population from the outside world have made it kind of difficult to have access to this kind of global platform, right? So that's one of the reasons. I think another reason, though, is the fact that the kind of the way the story of um, the, the Arab Spring, you know, Sudan is a country kind of in the margin of the Arab world that's sometimes considered part of the region, sometimes not. It's in the beginning when the revolution happened, it was very much framed within that, you know, is this a second uh, wave of the Arab Spring? Is this, what is going on here? But very much in line with that uh, story, which is also, of course, problematic and I don't think representative of what happened in Tunisia and Egypt and so forth. But the thing about it is that that story was told as kind of almost like the beginning of history, right? So it was almost like 
Nobody thought people in this region, this very backward region of the world, could rise up and demand such sophisticated things as rights, right? And so it was almost as if prior to um, 20, uh, 2011, there was no history in that region. But of course, we know that in those countries, in Sudan in particular, there's an accumulation of struggle. So there are ways in which Rabab and Muslim have pointed to where some of the, sh the way the struggle is being fought in Sudan today looks different from the past, but there are ways in which it is continuation of that. So Sudan, as many people that know Sudan know, is a kind of history of actually military dictatorships of various ideological backgrounds being met by civic uprisings. Um, so we have 1964, we call it the October Revolution. Uh, again, in 1985, the Intifada, which as a child, that was one big space for me of my own political formation. And I see some, there's a lot of, there are some things that you see that are continuations. I mean, it always amazes me when I see, for example, the young people in Sudan in the protest singing some of, some of the leftist uh, songs of the 1960s, like 1964. And I think it's important to mention here that almost 70% of the Sudanese population is under the age of 25. Wow. So this is really, really important because most of these people on the streets have not actually experienced life prior to the al-Bashir regime. They were born in that time. Uh, so it's, it, there's that aspect, but I see, some, uh, I see quite some differences as well. And one of the differences that I see is that one way in which this particular social movement, I think, has learned from Sudan's own history of of uprising, but also from what happened in the region um, in the 10 years prior to this revolution, is that, and, and I think that's when I started to realize in, in early 2019 that something very special was, was starting to happen there, is that there was a move away from the politics of the figure. So it wasn't about al-Bashir just falling, this figure had which, you know, if you read about the dictatorship tsunami, you think it's one guy, I and mean, of course the guy is the face of of a regime, but he's also the face of a post-colonial state, whether it's elected or not, that has been generating inequality in different ways over decades. But the just fall was kind of fascinating and, and powerful because it wasn't about, um, and you know, all Arabic speakers often would correct me because of the way that the, the gendering of it, but I'm, I'm talking, people were talking about the system. They want the system to fall. So there was an understanding already by 2018, 2019, that it's not about the figure. It's not even about the government falling. It's about the system falling. And I think this is the second difference that I see is that in the past, um, these revolutions were and uprisings were the results of a lot of struggle, but they tended to be, um, when they actually you know, manifested on the street, it tended to be quick. And they tended to be focused on the military switching alliance or part of the military abandoning the leadership. And this is a major difference in the sense that um, in the sense that today you see that this is a three-year sustained social movement that um, that is is unprecedented in our own history and very, very rare to see um, elsewhere. And I think the other interesting aspect of it is the leadership. So historically, the unions, um, the professional associations, and the unions um, were and were more important leaders. Political parties were important leaders. As we've seen from the narrative uh, that Rabab shared and that Muslim shared, they continue to be in different ways, and especially in the first uh, 
phase of the revolution, they still played a really important role. But then you see the emergence of these new leaderships that are coming up quite much more organically. And of course, that means that they're not always on, you know, poster perfect. So when we say resistance committees, we're talking about a network of, of at this point, probably thousands um, of neighborhood-based committees that have come together, pushed by the struggle, formed through the struggle. And of course, in many ways, they represent their local areas that they come from. So they have also class differences. They have all these sorts of, what they are, what they have been united in is that they want to see a sustained change, right? But um, but this is something, at least for me, as someone who also studies the history of social movements in Sudan, this is something different. And it's not just the resistance committees. You have many, many networks. I mean, I think of something like town, for example, like the demand-based um, gathering. Uh, it's, it's many different groups, some in the ports, for example, in East Sudan, some from the communities where the mining is, is wrecking, wreaking havoc on these communities in terms of health, in terms of economics, in terms of war and conflict. And, and different people coming from different parts of the country that have been marginalized through the colonial period, in the post-colonial period. And they are also fighting. You have a lot of women's organizations that have come together and fought in different places. And so the networks or the, the leadership is, is not centralized in the way that it, it often is in the, in the form of the, the, the unions and so forth. Because I'm, I have a lot, a lot to say, but because I am almost already out of time, um, <laughs> I want to just talk a, a bit about maybe to open up something in case people in the audience are also interested to talk about this or are thinking about it. Um, I think there is, when I think about the question of solidarity, I think that what, what is needed, because people always say, oh, what is needed? And there's a lot of concrete things that, that are needed in the standard solidarity movement, but I think what is needed, first of all, I think is, is a solidarity that is as sustained and as multi-level as the movement itself. And I know that maybe this is asking for a lot, but I think that the sustaining of this kind of solidarity is really, really critical because the movement in Sudan is very much facing, I mean, it's unbelievable pressures. And, and yet it has managed to uh, not only stay active, but stay, um, stay actually sustained for a very long time. So I think that the revolution in Sudan is reflective of the accumulation of decades and decades of social justice struggles. And I think I would really argue, and I, I really would stand by this, that today it's one of the really most ambitious, I think, social movements in the world, because it is really trying to tackle the roots of inequalities, not just the, the symptoms of the inequality, right? So it is, it's not only fighting to bring down the military and to bring down this kind of, um, the sort of the capitalist global order that has relegated these corners of the world where Sudan is to, to situations of desperation often, but it is also trying to really set a new vision, a new vision of how humans can live together. And this is incredibly difficult, incredibly uh, met with a lot of violence, and, and it requires, it cannot be done only from the movement itself. It requires uh, a, a global solidarity that understands that the outcome of what happens in Sudan is, will also influence what happens elsewhere. And I think I will stop there. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast 
and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.